This podcast is supported by JBS International Incorporated through a grant award from the Health Resources and Services Administration, HRSA, of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, with 0% finance with non-governmental sources. The contents are those of the author and do not necessarily represent the official views of, nor an endorsement, by HRSA, HHS, or the U.S. government. For more information, please visit hrsa.gov. Welcome in to another episode of Rural Roads, the Arcor podcast, where we discuss the stories, individuals, and everything else within the Rural Communities Opioid Response Program. I'm your host, Tim Raybolt with JBS International. Before we get into it, just a quick reminder on some of the ways you could stay connected and informed of all the latest Arcor information, updates, resources, and more. As always, you can visit the Arcor TA portal, check out the new modules on the LMS, and keep up with the monthly newsletter and weekly roundup emails. You can also follow us on social media by liking Arcor TA News on Facebook and following Arcor TA on both Twitter and Instagram. For today's episode, we're back with Melinda Campopiano, better known as Dr. C, for a special one-off episode that's short and packed, talking about the new DEA waiver requirements. Here we go. Today, we are back with Melinda Campopiano, better known as Dr. C, for part two of our miniseries with Dr. C. And we have a few episodes that we're excited to jump into. So, Dr. C, thanks for joining again. It's my pleasure. Happy to be here. Yes, I think we've maybe Robert and Donald were a recurring guest. They, they popped on twice. But other than that, it's exciting to have a return guest. Who, I'm who, very who, flattered but, to be invited back another time. Yes. So. Yeah, we love having the, the many theories. So today we're talking about the new DEA training requirements. And I know we're going to jump into some other topics later on. But with this, could you give maybe just a little bit of background on that? Why did we get rid of the waiver and end up replacing it with this training? Sure. I'm going to skip the kind of more bureaucratic details and the the history of the whole thing. But because we can do some self-promotion here and direct people who'd like to know the context to the April podcast on this, because the real reason just... In summary, the real reason why they got rid of the waiver is because we realized that treating addiction is everybody's responsibility. It's not something you can opt out of. All health care providers have to be able to offer these services and do it responsibly. I think we were a little kind of slow coming to that understanding. We were very focused on if you're prescribing opioids or stimulants, then you've got to be doing it really carefully so that you're not causing addiction or whatever. And then they realized, well, you know what, it's actually addiction that we need to be worried about. And we had set up the system that caused people to have to choose to want to do it. And it gave the message that you might, maybe if you don't want to do it, it's not your problem and you can ignore it. And that's not where we're at with the problem of addiction and related illness, injury, mortality associated with it. Great. So that's yeah. a short that's a short answer. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for the insight. Who's it for? Who's the kind of like the target? So if you're a health professional and you are have a DEA number, the DEA will call you a registrant. So you are a DEA registrant. And now basically everybody who wants that privilege is going to have to do training. Now There are a few, I shouldn't say everybody, because if you're a veterinarian, you're off the hook, but everybody else has to be able to tell the DEA that they've had this training. Now, there are a few people who basically have had the training who don't have to do it over again. And those are people who are board certified 
Uh, so like board certified in addiction psychiatry, board certified in addiction medicine. And there's three different boards that might certify you in addiction medicine. Any one of those counts. If you had a waiver in the past, then you've had the training and you don't have to do it over again. If you're just coming out of your professional school, as long as your school can tell you that they did provide you with eight hours of training and you might want to check with them if you can't tally it up in your mind, then you don't need to do it over again. So that's great news for new DEA registrants. As far as renewing registrants, the board certified people, the people who had a waiver are off the hook. Everybody else needs to satisfy the train or do the training in order to satisfy the requirement. You touched on time a little bit there. Eight hours? Is that the correct kind of... The, the training the amount of time you're meant to spend in training is eight hours. They basically, what was required to get the buprenorphine waiver, the old waiver, and said, okay, now everybody has to do it. The content requirements the and the places where you can get it are basically the same. Let me say actually one more thing to clarify where you can get your training. Basically, any CME, continuing medical education, that was certified for continuing education, there's a couple of certifying bodies that are, are work nationally. And then most of the time, if it's your professional organization, they're going to grant you CME. So that counts. A lot of state medical societies provide continuing medical education. So if they're if they have material that meets your need, then those will count, basically. So there's quite a few options for where you want to get your training or from whom. Yeah, that's good insight as well. Is there a deadline or? So you only have to do it once. But if you're already a DEA registrant, you need to do it between now and whenever you have to renew. So typically that's every two years. So if you're not sure, double check when your renewal date is so that you can schedule yourself out. Now, the thing is, if you're renewing, you know, we're talking to each other in late September. If you're renewing in October, you better get on it because that's what it's tied to. Now, when you go to fill out your renewal application, you're going to have to check a box that says, I attest, I'm giving you my word that I did the eight hours of training. They're not going to ask you to submit documentation, although I would recommend that you keep that stuff because if ever you're chosen for a DEA audit, they may ask you. And I don't want to get too much into detail, but you're going to want to keep that at work and keep a copy at home in case you switch a job sometime in the next 10 years and then they show up. But you don't want to lose your copies of your documentation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that makes sense. Any general recommendations for providers on this? The training requirement is meant to be about treatment management of patients with opioid use disorder or substance use disorder. In the spirit of complying with that, you want to look for curricula that focus on that. There are a lot of curricula out there that are eight hours long, but they're really about pain, which is good to know. It's useful information, but it's not necessarily uh, exactly what the training requirement is potentially going to satisfy the requirement. You don't have to do eight hours of a single course. If you want to get an hour here, an hour there, and choose your own adventure, then you can do that. There's a couple thoughts about trainings. Think about the quality. If you're looking for free training, PCSS Now has an SUD 101 training that is updated this year, which is always something I look at. How old is this training? That is a good one. 
And I say it's a good one because they've been doing this for a long time. There are a lot of people that have quickly put together a training in the last six months who maybe don't have the same access to experts that some of the organizations that have been doing it longer have had. So if free is a priority for you, that's probably a good option. Another potential good free option is called Scope of Pain, and it's put together by Boston University and it's grant funded, so it is free. And their original purpose was pain management education, but they have an addiction-related curriculum as well. And it's usually in one-hour bits. So you can, if you want to do some of their stuff and then somebody else's materials too, that's fine. Yeah. There's a couple of sort of inexpensive options. The American Society of Addiction Medicine, which has, again, been doing this for a long time, has a Fundamentals of Addiction curriculum that's eight hours long. And I think it's $99 or something like that for non-members. So reasonable, because these courses, if you don't know, can cost hundreds <laughs> and more. Uh, so it can be quite costly. The other place to look would be your specialty society. So if you're a nurse practitioner, go to your national organization for nurse practitioners to see what they have. Physicians, the AMA has resources put together. Not very many of them are free. One of the resources they include is the one I just mentioned from ASAM. I'm a family physician. So American Academy of Family Physicians has a very practical curriculum that I'm working my way through that is inexpensive to non-members as well. Go to your professional society and see what they've got going on or if they've already vetted some trainings for you. Thank you for sharing all that. Between the inexpensive options, the local resources, the free ones, uh, I think that provides folks a lot of different options and avenues to go explore. So you touched on this um, a bit, but anything else guidance-wise, strategy, recommendations for grantees specifically when it comes to this training? Grantees, there there probably are practical things you can do to help, such as vetting some of the resources that providers may just be overwhelmed when they go to DEA training and they get 500 things that come back on their search. So communicating some of these ways to break down a strategy to selecting the right training is a good thing to do. The other thing that might be helpful is finding out if your state has any additional requirements. Because some states have made changes to their requirements based because of this. Some of them had higher requirements that you should probably check and see if they're still in effect. And I'll tell you, the Federation of State Medical Boards is probably the one place go to to find out what state requirements are. Because you can just go there, click on, because you might be, your grant may be serving more than one state, and go see what that stuff is. And if you can put it together for your providers, that would be potentially really useful. Because this is the kind of stuff that will just overwhelm you as a provider. You're like, I've got to go find out this, and I've got to go check that, and I've got patients waiting. The other thing I would suggest is this is a good opportunity to get to know your dentists, because they have to do this too. And you may not have established relationships with them because they're not really expected to treat. They might scream, but they're not really expected to treat. So they may be haven't been on your radar, but this is a good time to go and introduce yourself and tell them about the grant and provide them with some useful information. I, I guess the other thing is this is a little bit of a medical tip that, that they're saying that they teach us to do in school, which is apply reassurance. 
So we pretend like it's an actual thing that we're giving people, but I would recommend that grantees apply copious reassurance that this is manageable. You can get it done. It's out there. It's for free. Something that we that used to happen long ago is we used to do the eight-hour training for the buprenorphine waiver. We call it half and half, where people would do half of it online and half of it in person. And it was really helpful to have an expert for some of the time to tell you like, okay, here's what's really important and here's how you apply that. And so that might be a model to think about trying to adapt for your community if it gives them sort of a group to be a part of to get through it. They do the same training and they get together to discuss it. Maybe they even watch it together so that it's more it's as much a community building opportunity and an opportunity for you as a grantee to be trying to meet a community need. Um, hospitals might be a good partner for that. They may be willing to let you have one of their sessions, one of their educational sessions a month. Most of them are doing grand rounds and things like that that are already granting CME to their staff. And so check with your hospitals uh, and see if you if uh, they'd be interested in partnering with you. Wonderful. You pack a lot of information in a short bit of time. Anything <laughs> else we didn't cover that you wanted to make sure you talk about when it comes to these new DEA training requirements? Uh, no, you're, you're, I did pack a lot in there, didn't I? I, I'll just say, I'll, I'm going to pull together res- some resources for what we were just talking about, and we'll just have to package that with the, with the podcast. So Absolutely. Yeah. Don't yeah. be afraid we'll if you didn't take out. notes. Yeah. Definitely. Okay. Yeah, we'll get that out there for folks that were tuning in. So for those listening, thank you. We will see you next time. And Dr. C, as always, thank you for joining. Thanks, Tim.